Welcome to the stream. Welcome to the chat. Uh, some people are joining me on the live side, um, on the Zoom side of the live call. Other people are like Secret Agent Dan in the chat. Welcome, Secret Agent Dan. Good to see you again. How's it going, everybody? I'm David McCarricker. This is Theory Underground. I am your host today, and we'll be talking about the Week in Review. And we will also be talking about why most theory educational content today is, uh, though it might be helpful in some ways, uh, lacking in a very important and specific regard, and uh, that is lectures. And so I'm going to be doing a defense of lectures. I'll be reading my blog post on the topic. But first we're going to talk about how it's going. And uh, so this is the part here where everybody in the Zoom call feel free to, you know, raise your hand and or, you know, and th there'll be, you know, opportunities to, to chime in because I know that different people are going to be uh, keen on reminding me or reminding all of us about something that I probably forgot about that's important to just talking about the week. But the things I want to talk about are finances, money, stress, uh, the update on the immigration shenanigans that Ann and I had to deal with. Uh, and oh, we're going to talk a little bit about politics, the left, leftism as a master signifier, uh, the post-left kind of thing. Uh, Specifically, some comments I've heard or received about uh, the video I did with Todd McGowan, some of the criticism of his political position. We'll be talking about all of that stuff uh, after I've read the piece on the importance of lectures, because I think it's going to be an important piece of context. Um, what's up, Master Signified Bodies? I see you there in the public chat, as well as the Swolitariat and Secret Asian Dan. Let me know, you guys, on the, on the live side. How is the microphone here? Should I turn it down or am I blasting out the am I blasting out the speakers? It kind of looks like I might be. Here, let me turn this down a little bit. Turning it down, turn it down. Is that better? Can anyone tell a difference? Is this better? This one's a little bit better. That's a little better. That's a little better. Sick. Yeah. I can hear you, Swole. Okay, yeah, it's a little better. Nice. Yeah. You sound a little better. I sound like shit because I got I got the vid or some infection. Oh no. <laughs> well, uh how long have you had it? Uh since like Tuesday night or Wednesday. Oh shit. Okay. Well yeah. sorry to hear. Is it on the is it getting worse or getting better? This is the thing. It's getting the same. I'm <laughs> so, which makes me worry because that's kind of usually how bacterial infections go. They just kind of stay the same. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cool, Swole. Well, um, good to have you. Uh, glad you were able to make it. Uh, you're probably one of the people who is so busy with normal life. You've not been able to stay in the loop with a lot of the stuff that's going on at the underground. And so you are a part of the actual audience or intended audience of this video, which is to say a fellow traveler, a supporter, a compatriot 
who's probably out of the loop. We're going to bring you right back in on the loop. So welcome, everybody, especially on the podcast side of things. Good to have you all joining while you're changing diapers and driving trucks and stocking shelves and working in warehouses and all that shit that you're all doing. But um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have you all. Um, Anne and I, we talked about this in the last two week in review. So I'm going to start out by saying we finally got this stuff worked out. We are officially legal in Aguascalientes. And do you, do you, uh, are you able to talk right now or are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Cool. Yeah. Let's, let's, um, let's talk about it for a minute. Yeah. So we had our 20 days on our tourist card. Everyone was like, Hey, you're probably fine. But then some people were like, Hey, you could go to jail if they catch you. And so we're like, well, we should probably go get this taken care of. So for around like $150 each, we got a round trip ticket to and from Tijuana all within the same day. So we landed in Tijuana, Baja, California at like 8am, uh, walked across the, the cross border express where we were in the U S for probably 15 minutes total. And then we walked right back across and that was kind of stressful because we were just like, we're just like, I don't know. Are we going to have to explain ourselves? Are they going to be like, why are you, why did you just leave and come back? We didn't even have to pay a fine to leave the country. Like literally no one looked at our documents or anything. We just left, came right back. You know, the lady at the the border was doing out our papers, checking everything. And I said like in Spanish, oh, we're going to, we're going to be here until May 31st. So that's this many days. And she looked at me like, yeah, done giving you six, you get six months to be here. And so I was like, oh, that's good. The last time we got here, they gave us 20 days. And she was like genuinely shocked that that happened. So I don't think that's very common. Right, uh, we were like, at- we were wondering if there was going to be a bunch of other Americans having to exit and reenter, if this was going to be like, something that's happening either a fluke in the system or something that's accidentally very profitable for the airports or whatever you know no it just seems like uh the lady writing down 20 days on our digital form was just something that was a fluke yeah and so we made it back in and the next thing you know it was like 9 30 and we're like damn we got literally the entire day to be here because our flight was at like midnight so we just got to hang out in tijuana which is really fun yeah my 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 thing about tijuana was that it it's a city that i don't know we would have ever really visited and it's cool to know that it's right over the border from san diego you can see san diego we walked down to the beach where the border goes into the water there's a border wall that goes down into the water and uh, you could swim around the border wall and there's not like a guard tower with a sniper or whatever. But there's we did see some border patrol throughout the day. And uh you know, we we uh got to meet a really cool Uber driver named Jesus. Um he gave us a lot of advice and you know, we learned some new words from him and stuff like that. So, friendly guy. I mean, honestly, like We've had a lot of Uber drivers because it's the cheapest way to get around out here. And uh, yeah, Jesus was by far one of the coolest guys I've met doing that so far. Yeah. And anything else yep. we want to... So we had some good food. We hung out at the beach. Got to people watch. Got to just be in a new place. And now we're here. We're settled. And that was no is no longer a stress for us here. Right. That's all. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for ch- for the update. Now the the other stress is the financial stress, 
And I wanted to say a couple of things about that. So, you know, because the, the money stress was the was has been number one uh, for the last couple months here. And then this uh, immigration complication, realizing we were illegally in uh, the country, that was uh, kind of a or that our legal time had run up. That was a that was a, like a, another it was like a more pressing stress, but in a sort of a way like it's been less of a big deal. The money thing is we, we're both on our savings right now, mostly my savings from Amazon and from the sale of my tiny house. But that's, we've got about another month of that. And the, the main thing I wanted to say about money is just this. Um, I feel like I might've messed up in my messaging because I have like this long advertisement at the end of each of the Zizek 101 or in the, at the end of that Todd McGowan um, interview. There's like a you know, countrywide tour announcement. And I also say that, you know, we've only been going for a month. We've already raised over $3,000. That makes it sound like we're just raking in the cash right now. But actually, I should have said, we've received one donation of $3,000 that was specifically dedicated to the app, which is in process behind the scenes. And we'll talk a little bit more about the website and technical difficulties and stuff like that in a little bit. But the point is, that um, no money is scarce, uh, but I am feeling pretty good about it because in the last month and a half, I have gained two new patrons who are paying $50 per month. And so $50 stretches pretty far in Mexico. So I'm kind of feeling like, okay, well, at least our, at least a lot of our food is covered. So thank you to our uh, donors. Uh, it means a lot. I'll eventually find out who likes to be acknowledged by name and who doesn't, who wants to remain anonymous. But as far as donations and all of that stuff goes, uh, just go to theory-underground.com forward slash support. You can uh, donate whatever you want by the PayPal button that you'll see there. Or there's a $50 recurring payment tier, which gives you special access to things like uh, some of these Zoom calls that don't go live, uh, some of these exegetical readings that are happening every week, as well as, yeah, I sent out the link to all of my patrons this morning so that they could join in this call. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's the money side of things. I just wanted to say, we're. Uh, I, I hope I'm not sending out this message that we're, we're rich, but I am feeling good. I'm feeling... Like, okay, if I hadn't gotten this many donations up to this point, then I'd be sitting here wondering what I'm doing wrong. But it seems like this is, this is a pretty good rate of growth. And so I just wanted to say thank you to my patrons. And now I want to talk about the app, because if we got all this money for the app, then where is it? I had watched a video, how to have your Buddy Boss app set up in 20, uh, in, in, you know, set it up in an hour. It goes live in 24 hours. Okay. What I was, what I didn't understand is that they actually roll out access to the app in batches, and so I had to deal with some technical difficulties over the last couple of weeks concerning the app getting it set up. But now I've got a new hurdle, which is completely out of my control, and that is that on the side of the software team, they I'm in a batch that is coming up, but I'm not being prioritized yet, and so I think my month might be next month. And I said, can you give me a precise date? And they said, no. 
But when I look at the sales side, it says that the batches are only booked, like fully booked out a month ahead. And so I think it's coming up here soon. So stay tuned because I'm really excited about the app. It'll make it so that a lot of the difficulties that people are currently having go away. And then we'll have other kinds of difficulties that I'll have to address, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with those as they come. And what I really wanted to say is thank you to Nick and Philip and Nance, because the three of you have given me feedback on the website in ways that has helped me uh, fine tune it and work with uh, technical support to get things figured out. Um, so let, I want to give a couple of examples of what I'm talking about right here. So I'm going to so people on the Zoom call, you OBS had to disconnect and reconnect, but I think we're back. So check it out. The, uh, this is the four that I don't know what they do course. Everything should be working here. Just great. If you have registered with the website, make sure to check your spam account for the email. If it goes, if it went there. But you should be able to uh, start the course right here. Uh, wait, hold on. Let me. Ah, there you see. There you see now. Okay, so right there. Click the start, start the course. But uh, if you don't see that, you'll probably see add to cart or pay for it or something like that. It's $50. Uh, some people don't want to spend any money on things except for entertainment and uh you know, more obviously immediately enjoyable consumer goods like food. Uh, and I don't mean like necessary food, but I mean like enjoyable food. So entertainment and enjoyable consumer products. But as soon as it comes to the idea of like philosophy and theory online, people get all like, well, why should I have to pay for that? Think about it. There's a lot of free stuff already available online. So why not just go with that? Here's the answer. Here's why it's got a price tag on it. I have to eat and the cost of running this website and everything that's being planned out for years ahead, including this countrywide tour, costs money. And right now I'm funding it with the money I saved up while working at Amazon, cutting costs, living in a tiny house on somebody else's farm. So I've made a bunch of sacrifices to be able to get it to this point. And so, yeah, charging $50, I figured it's the cost of taking someone out on a nice date. And when I say taking someone out on a nice date, I mean, if you're middle class, I mean, you could be lower middle class and that would still be true. The, kind of the real difference is how often you go out when, when we're talking about lower versus middle class. But if you're poor or if you're broke or if you are in Mexico or some other country like Poland where your currency does not go as far and where you're not being paid anything close to what's fair, um then uh, I want to make a special exception for you, right? I want to make special exceptions for anybody who is in a situation where if they were taking someone out on a special date and they were for real about that date, they really wouldn't be able to go to some place where they're spending $50. They would be going to some place where it's more like 150 pesos or zlotys or whatever currency you're dealing with. And this goes for people who are unemployed, people who uh, just got out of jail, they're paying off all of these court fees and they haven't even got a good job yet and so they're really in a bind. I wanna make some kind of a financial aid scholarship thing available to y'all. I wanna make some kind of a special tier available, available to people with cheaper currencies. 
uh, and then I also want to make uh, a tier for people who they would spend a lot more on a nice date. Make a special tier for them too. Because the point is, is like it's relative. It's relative to your lifestyle and class position. And uh, so I do want to make some changes there eventually. Those changes have not yet been made. So for the time being, it's just $50. If that $50 is stopping you from enrolling in this course that starts on Saturday, this coming Saturday, if you really want to see Mikey's lectures and you want to be a part of the forum and everything like that, but this is somehow stopping you, email theoryplaywithgmail.com, please, and we will figure it out. And then in the future, I'll get the different tiers set up and all of that. But yeah, this, this, uh, this course... I mean, you could consider it some kind of an honorarium. It's obviously not paying Mikey for his labor, and it's definitely not paying for the cost of the course uh, site even. So, you know, anyway. All right, that's the money stuff I wanted to talk about. So thank you for hearing me out on all that. There will be people who probably skip past all of this and get straight to the meat of this conversation. But uh, I just wanted to make sure to kind of put this stuff up front and center because... Part of the point of these community and review things is so that if something important got said and then you, because you were busy, didn't see what got said, you're in the loop. But also, I do want to keep people uh, up to date as far as finances go because that's just a part of trying to run a trans- a relatively transparent operation. And I, to that, you know, at least to that extent, I, I want to. Um, Quick thing about technical difficulties though, uh, there's been issues with the event page. There's been issues with people getting logged out when they're switching between tabs. Uh, there's been issues with uh, the login page itself because it was directing people to a wordpress.com login instead of a wordpress.org login and it shouldn't have been leading you to either of those things. It should have been leading you to something else entirely which is uh, a custom login for the website, right? And so I got that taken care of. That one is solved. Uh, the events page thing is still a little confusing, but if you just go to theory-underground.com, if you can see the screen right now, I'm gonna put my mouse over here uh, where it says events. If I click events right there, that works. But for some reason, the events URL is not working. And when I've tried to make new events, there's been an issue and it has to do something with something default having been changed. and. I have to talk to tech support again because they closed my ticket and now I have to reopen it. But as you see here, if you go to events, it says coming to a town near you, 2023. And it says we're breaking out of algorithmic silos and meeting all kinds of people who do not fit into the established media demographics. We're doing everything in our power to raise the intellectual climate of the United States while connecting with new people and old friends. By clicking the button below, you can see some of the locations and dates as they develop, as well as apply to volunteer, host, or guide. Cool. And then, you know, I'll actually open that up here and we'll talk about that in a second. But if you keep scrolling down, this is just where you see all the other events. And there are some things that do happen that are not currently listed, but I'm trying to get better about it. And definitely things like the courses and stuff like that. If you're ever confused, like, oh, when does that start? or what time is that live stream? This should be the answer for you. Right now, it does not have the essential texts with Dave listed because of the bug I was just talking about, but we will get that sorted out and that should be there in the future. Okay, 
The other thing was the, if you, yeah, so if you followed that link, then here's a form that you can fill out if you're interested in being a host, a guide, or a volunteer uh, when we come to your city or a city near you. Okay? So check that out if you're interested. Uh, Swole, you know, I know you're in Canada, but we are talking about popping up into East Coast Canada to do something with you. So if you want us to come, you need to fill out this form. Nick, if you're watching this, you should fill out this form as well. We already know that you're going to be a good guide when we're there, but you should still fill it out because we want to have all the guides, all the volunteers, and all the hosts all in one place. Uh, Marilyn, if you want to have us stay at your place in your guest bedroom like I did last time I was there, you'd want to fill this out as well as a host. Um, it's just a good, it's a good way to do things because Anne and I realized we're staying at all these different people's houses. We're staying at, different people are guiding us around areas and stuff like this when we were just traveling and different people have different expectations and lifestyles and preferences. And that's all stuff that we want to know in advance so that we can maximize our quality time together. Cool. Does anybody in the zoom chat have anything that they would like to add uh, for the weekly update, be, before I start reading, and then after the reading, we'll have a more general conversation about people's uh, takes this week and all of that kind of stuff. Anybody have anything they want to get in at the front here? Sorry, where is this the spot I can uh, fill out <coughs> the form? Yeah, are you able to see the uh, the website right now on the screen here? Uh, well, I'm I'm on it right now. Yeah, so if you go to events, the yeah. events the events tab, then the first thing on the header, this button right here, this red button that says Theory Underground US oh. Tour Info. If you click on that, then the form is. Uh, there's two ways of filling out the form. One is the embedded form that's on the page itself. You see, it's right here, right. So you can just fill it out right there on the page or you can click this button here and it'll take you into Google Forms and you can fill it out there. Either way should work. All right, go. Yeah. Figuring out how to embed forms like this was really fun. I'm super stoked about all the cool capabilities that unlocks. Cool. So Eamon got that. Uh, God, and if you fill that out and we actually start making plans, we're going to do something really cool. I don't know what it is just yet, but it's going to be epic. All right. Anything else? Anyone else? Cool. All right. So if you go to the publications page on the website here, you will see... Uh, My book is the first thing that you'll see. But if you scroll past that, you'll see upcoming books coming soon. And then you scroll down and you'll actually see these image thumbnails and you put your mouse over them and it gives you the title of my blog posts. And I'm slowly but surely refining this. This is not the final look. This is better than what was here before, but this is just where it's at for now. I'm still kind of partially on medium and substack to you know varying degrees but i want to base all of my writings 
out of my website, of course. Uh, this is also where you will find the text-based and audio versions of my book for free. So if you want to listen to and or read uh, Waypoint, then uh, this is where you do that. Right here, you can just click it, open it, and check it out. You'll see all of the different chapters listed here separately. And if you want to buy the soft cover, you can always do that for $12 here, which is way cheaper than what it is on Amazon. But uh, the main thing I wanted to point out is that, yeah, if you click on it, you can stay here, you can read it for yourself. Or if you hate reading things, you can always just click play and then go wash the dishes or do whatever kinds of video gaming or chores you like to do while you listen to things. So check it out. So I'm just going to dive right in here into the introduction. Are you ready? Are you ready? 2020 introduction. Okay. So anyway, the, the, there you go. That's I made it available. But below that is my newest post. Mastery versus students supposed to know. We need a new master. But first, we need lectures. And that's what we will be reading today. Mastery versus students supposed to know. We need a new master, but first we need lecturers. Let me know in the live chat or in the Zoom chat if you've already read this. If you've not, well then welcome. If you have, then great. This will be a good refresher. The subtitle is, we need leaders, but first we need teachers, as in subjects supposed to know and teach their field. It's time for theory professors to stop pretending they're in the clinic. If you ever take online courses in the world of theory, then you likely know teaching is rare. Instead, we get people who are trying to refuse the role of subjects supposed to know. See below. While this sounds good in theory, how it actually pans out is a big waste of time for anyone who actually does the readings. If you struggle with the hardest sections of the hardest works in theory, writing about your confusion, and then come coming, and then you come hoping for cl clarification by way of seeing genuine attempts at disciplined and principled interpretations advanced, contradictions thoroughly worked through and defended from different perspectives in a rigorous and critically self-conscious manner, much less concepts elucidated with various examples, then you will likely be irritated to instead hear a bunch of people who did not do the reading saying the things that one says when they have come out the other side of an education system that normalizes perpetual imposter syndrome and social signaling rather than genuine, rigorous, and sustained critical dialogue or growth. Instead of getting to hear someone who has read and reread and reread the text in an attempt to get a firm grasp of the subject matter, you're likely to see that person turn things over to questions and community contributions, something usually done under the auspices of flipping the classroom, trying to be anti-authoritarian horizontalist rhizomes and refuse the position of subject supposed to know. I'm, I'm saying it all with this voice because it's like scare quotes, okay? And uh, Philip said, I read it. Good to hear it again. Yes. I'm going to see if I can do something really quick here. I need to edit the post uh, if I can to make this stupid share, these, these share buttons that are blocking it go away. That's... That should not 
be there. Um, but as you can tell, this is going to be a sort of critique of some sort of anarchist new left assumptions that have creeped into uh, organizing and theory spaces as well as uh, some related stuff. You're going to hear some quotes that you've probably not heard that I'm really excited to share with you because I've been wanting to share them for a long time. How do I turn off the freaking shares? All right, well, we're just going to keep going for now. The subject's supposed to know. The subject supposed to know is an effect of transference and is, as such, structurally impossible in the first person. He is, by definition, supposed to know by another subject. This is a quote from the book Looking Awry by Slavoj Žižek, page 62. The subject supposed to know is a concept from Lacanian psychoanalysis. In the clinic, patients, analysts ands, unconsciously put the analyst in the position of the subject supposed to know the solution to their fundamental problems. Zizek says it is best in his sh- Zizek says it best in his short How to Read Lacan. Is everyone reading this okay? I feel like it was small text. You can always let me know if you can't see it and then I'll try to fix it. Let's see if I can get this fixed here really quick. Yeah, I can't figure out how to turn off the uh, the share buttons. They're so annoying. They're like blocking reading. That's something that I'm going to have to deal with with technical support. Oh, well. Let's make this bigger. God, that's so bad. How do people even look at this? Why didn't anybody tell me that my blog is unreadable right now with this these share buttons blocking everything? I'll just have to read the part before it hits that. Okay, so here's the here's Zizek's quote from uh, How to Read Lacan. In a slightly different way, this is how the psychoanalyst, as the subject's supposed to know, functions in the treatment. Once the patient is engaged in the treatment, he has the same absolute certainty that the analyst knows his secret, which only means that the patient is a priori guilty of hiding a secret that there is a secret meaning to be drawn from his acts. Um, this is all at the level of the unconscious. So you could go in there saying, well, I know the analyst doesn't know my secret. But the point is, is that like, yeah, but you wouldn't be there. And unconsciously, you still put him in the position. And I'm saying him because that's what we're rolling with here. But you'd put the analyst in the position of subject supposed to know. This, this effective transference is operative in every clinical space. And it's something that analysts always have to deal with. And to some degree, it's operative in other spheres of life as well, which is why professors to some degree feel it and then try to act like they're analysts, which they need to stop doing. But we'll get back to that in a bit. The analyst is not an empiricist probing the patient with different hypotheses, searching for proofs. Instead, he embodies the absolute certainty, which Lacan compares to the certainty of Descartes' cogito ergo sum, of the patient's unconscious desire. For Lacan, this strange transposition of what I already know in my unconscious onto the figure of the analyst is at the core of the phenomenon of transference in the treatment. Okay, uh, Secret Asian Dan says when I make this full screen, that's not a problem. So I'm going to actually full screen, see how that works out. Eh, 
I wouldn't say that's much better for me. Oh, it's a little bit better. Okay, thanks, Secret Asian Dan. That's good. Okay. For Lacan, this strange transposition of what I already know in my unconscious onto the figure of the analyst is at the core of the phenomenon of transference in the treatment. I can only arrive at the unconscious meaning of my symptoms if I presuppose that the analyst already knows their meaning. The difference between Freud and Lacan is that while Freud focused on the psychic dynamics of transference as an intersubjective relationship, the patient transfers onto the figure of the analyst his feelings about his father, so that when he seems to talk about the analyst, he really talks about his father, etc. Lacan extrapolated from the empirical wealth of transferential phenomena the formal structure of the supposed meaning, right? So while Freud was like thinking literally, you know, here you are talking about talking to the analyst but you're treating them like your father. Uh, Lacan says, no, no, we're going to abstract from that the formal structure of what's going on in transference. Hey, this is even better now. Nice. Let's see. I bet I could even crop out the share buttons now on the side. Yeah. It's much better. Okay, we'll make it bigger. Okay. There we go. This dynamic puts the patient in a state of infantile dependence. Whereas most therapists cultivate this for profit and esteem, the Lacanian analyst has the incredibly difficult job of foiling the analyst's desire, resisting transference, and refraining from giving authoritative advice or interpretations. Lacanian analysts, if they are serious about the theoretical side of things, nevertheless psychoanalyze their patients. They just refrain from giving interpretations, right? I'm using the word refrain here twice. I only used it once in the original version of this article, but then I duplicate the word refrain just to really drive home the point that, yeah, they still give interpretations. They still give advice. They refrain. Part of the point of being a Lacanian analyst is that you refrain as much as possible. The point is to lead the patient to their own interpretations, right? It's more Socratic in that sense. This is based in the idea that someone else pointing out your problems or seemingly obvious interpretations results in those problems relocating. We are all too proficient at adapting to outside critiques in a way that doesn't actually change anything from the inside out. Okay, so this is all fine and good, and I hope we all get to pursue this kind of process in the clinic, but teachers are not analysts. This should be obvious. But for some reason, but for some reason, the theorists who are most influenced by Lacan or his heretical disciple Guattari are dead set on teaching in a way that refuses to lecture. A specter is haunting radical classrooms, the specter of the 1960s new left. Here we go. This is where rubber meets the road. Occupy Wall Street was a perfect example of how certain assumptions from the new left are still alive and well today. A form of critique that sees verticality, which is to say the opposite of horizontality, you know, up and down, as the root of all oppression. In this framework, hierarchy becomes a stand-in signifier for bad, authority as equivalent to authoritarianism, and the signifiers horizontal and democratic as cure-alls, or supreme goals. Any American who was around for Bernie or BLM activism in the last seven years 
should know full well how those Occupy values live on to undermine movement energies. As the horizontalist activist's favorite educator, Starhawk, made clear in her book on horizontal organizing, such direct democracy forms of anti-vertical organizing can be very empowering and useful for short-term efforts. Okay, I bolded and italicized that. For short-term efforts. But don't take that on faith from me. I will share with you the definitive quote. Before sharing, I really want to emphasize that in anarchist and permaculture-slash-eco-village organizing communities, Starhawk has been one of the most well-known educators in horizontalist political organizing for almost 50 years, though she got a huge boost during Occupy and has taken a serious hit in the last few years thanks to how insularly cannibalistic the idpol intersectionalist BLM left has become. But more on that later. For real, yeah. There there will be more on that. I actually have a crazy story about... Uh, I'll, I'll say it right now. The, the, the lady who tried to organize the eco-village in Boise uh, at the time that I was living there, um, she, you know, took her savings, went to a, a retreat to learn horizontal organizing from Starhawk. Uh, three black women who were there, uh, you know, to learn this for the sake of BLM activism, um, refused to let any of the meetings continue. They, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, in Senate when you, you're going to talk and not sit down, you're going to keep talking and to interrupt the whole process. There's a word for that. Filibuster. Thanks, Philip. Yeah. They filibustered for two days, uh, this five day training retreat saying that they needed to be the ones who would decide what would be talked about the fact that Starhawk had a preconceived notion of what she wanted to teach was inherently vertical, authoritarian, and white supremacist. Um, and then they wanted the white people to all meet on their own and uh, be secluded um, and then uh, basically sit there and process their privilege or whatever. And then um, when everything was reconvened, they had basically decided what they wanted Starhawk to teach, which Starhawk was like, well, that's basically what I was already teaching. And now we don't have time to get through most of it. And so this this organizer who had gone to learn uh, some of these organizing techniques comes back very burnt out and... Uh, ceased to do that kind of organizing after a few more months of trying. And that was after years of trying, right? And when you get involved with this kind of stuff and this kind of wing of organizing and direct mutual aid kind of stuff, um, if you fall in with the wrong people and all they like to do is talk and do this sort of uh, micro power analysis and uh, it's all about marginalization and representation and inclusion and uh, yeah, you're not going to be able to get a lecture and that, that's the biggest thing. You're not going to be able to get a lecture, but more importantly, this kind of stuff can only, this kind of uh, like, oh, let's air our grievances and let's sit here and do consciousness raising. Well, it has a place in specific contexts, 
it does not work for long-term efforts, which is why I'd highlighted and I italicized that this can be, uh, this can only be empowering or useful for short-term efforts. It's not made for long-term efforts. What follows is not just Starhawk's principled and preferred approach to organizing, but is also, but it also sums up the assumptions and preferences of the new left from America to France. This is then the practical bullet point version of what Deleuze and Guattari are getting at when they say at the beginning of A Thousand Plateaus, we are tired of trees, right? Because the rhizome is horizontal, whereas the aborescent is a tree. That's, that's what's going on there. But uh, here's the Starhawk quote, and it's a long one because it's very important and it drives me crazy that people who do theory and think about Deleuze and Guattari don't realize how old and tired this kind of organizing is. But yeah, this is, this is the, from her organizing manual. Collaborative is the term I've chosen to describe groups that are based on shared power and the inherent worth and value of each member. Brofman and Beckstrom in The Starfish and the Spider characterize what they call starfish groups as very amorphous and fluid. Because power and knowledge are distributed, individual units quickly respond to a multitude of internal and external forces. They are constantly spreading, growing, shrinking, mutating, dying off, and re-emerging. The quality makes them very, this quality makes them very flexible. How do I define a collaborative group? It's a group that has most, if not all, of the following characteristics. Here's the laundry list of bullet points, the last of which is the one I've highlighted or bolded. I'll say my emphasis when I get to it. First, structured as circles, webs, or networks, not pyramids or trees. Groups of peers with a horizontal structure working together to create something and to make decisions. Groups without formal authority, no bosses that can hire or fire you. In some hybrid groups, that authority might exist, but be rarely and reluctantly imposed. Businesses that run collectively or cooperatively. Groups where the major reward may not be money, but something else. Creative fulfillment, impact on the world, spiritual development, personal growth, or friendship. Often formed around strong altruistic values, from saving the world to sharing knowledge to religious observation or community celebration. Groups of humans, which means that motives of gain, status, and power do come into play, if not overtly, then covertly. Groups that often have few or no overt rules, but many norms. And then here's the one I emphasized often ephemeral, for better or worse. The crucial point, and end of quote, the crucial point for anyone who cares about long-term, wide-scale, and fundamental forms of transformation capable of counteracting the political and economic structures that produce and subtend mainstream culture is obviously the last one. Collaborative, rhizomatic, horizontalist groups, circles, and networks are often ephemeral, for better or worse. Whereas Reich, Marcuse, and Deleuze and Guattari saw the liberation of desire and general release of all that had hitherto been repressed as a genuine opportunity for overcoming capital, capital had no problem at all adapting. 
Activists and hippies famously burnt out and then opted back in for the long march through the institutions, filling the ranks of what Barbara Ehrenreich documented and theorized as the emerging professional managerial class. It turned out that creative sublimation and personal forms of countercultural transgression were hyper-amenable to the development of consumer capitalism. In this context, radical activism became a phase one goes through as a rite of passage to adult progressive careerism. Amen's in the chat saying, snaps, finger snaps anarchistically. Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, do, do, let's do our little occupy hand signs while we're at it. As Benedict Cryptofast recently dragged out in delightful detail, there are still rosy-eyed radical progressives in, acad in academia touting the personal transformation spurred on by Occupy. Cryptofash's case in point is Gabriel Winant, a self-congratulatory history professor at the University of Chicago whose account of Occupy is particularly revealing. By the way, one of my proofreaders was like, maybe you should talk about who Benedict Cryptofash is. And I did in a previous article. And uh, he was the person who didn't want to debate Chris Catrone, even though he was disagreeing with Chris Catrone. And so I tried to represent his position in, an, in a conversation with Chris Catrone uh, last year. Uh, and so I'll sum it up short by just saying he was kind of a post-leftist who started the anti-leftist Marxist because he wa really wants to drive home the point for people that Marx was a fierce critic of the left. And so when naive leftists, especially fusionist leftists, kind of think of Marx as like this godfather or forefather of leftism. What they're forgetting is that uh, most of the forms of leftism that exist today existed in some form of Marx's time, and Marx was harshly critical of all of those. And so even if you're not a Marxist, um, and especially if you are, then you want to be thinking about like what that means and what would be your job Right. Uh, doesn't mean that you because what we have is whether you're sectarian or fusionist, the tendency on the left is to um, be very selective about who you're critical of and to not be too critical of the left. Right. Uh, there are people whose like number one rule in their communities is no punching left. And it's like uh, Marx was mostly punching left because that's the people he saw some hope in. And then obviously the post-left uh, doesn't really see hope in the left and thinks that it needs to be overcome. If there is to be some genuine mass change maker organization movement or group that is ever possible, right? And my position is pretty torn and divided and agnostic regarding all of that, but I have some hot takes I might drop later. Amen said in the chat, Marxism is the critique of socialism. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. And I saw Doug Lane say that the other day. Yeah, which is funny. I don't think that the, I don't think Doug was saying that a couple years ago, but I think it's become a thing that it does need to be spelled out. It does need to be clear. Anyway, so quote, whereas others looking, okay, who am I quoting? Oh, yeah. So this is the Benedict Cryptofash quote where he's dragging out in delightful detail the fact that there are still rosy-eyed radical progressives in academia toting the personal transformation spurred on by Occupy, right? Here's the quote. Whereas others looking back on the past decade would be hard-pressed to discern how Occupy did anything to disrupt the capitalist development it protested, 
Winant defines the success of Occupy in terms of the formative influence its shared experience had on a budding generation of ideological workers in academia and other cultural fields. Occupy's inability to transform the objective society is not important because, for Winant, it did something more profound. It changed the subjectivities of the important people whose experiences within Occupy would inform their professional roles in cultural institutions. Indeed, the participants would would change not the state, but themselves, and then carry that change with them elsewhere into the nonprofit sector, probably, right? Which is a legal status, not so much an actual antagonistic relation to profit or capital. Okay, so then I continue. Ephemeral forms of organizing is especially convenient if all one is going for is short-term feelings of personal transformation and bragging rights to put on one's virtual resume or CV, especially if that is to be done as fast as possible. While it is hard to imagine many people consciously choosing to accelerate a process that needs slow deliberation and time to develop, much less doing so for cynical reasons such as building their CV, it is even harder to imagine that so many would go this route if it was inconvenient in the short term. Ephemeral means passing out of existence almost as fast as it came in relative to the human time frame. A good example of ephemeral organizing, think Chaz, the anarchist mutual aid society that popped up for a couple months during the height of the 2020 George Floyd protests in Seattle before people died and they realized they wanted cops and ambulances after all. Christopher F. Rufo wrote about one of the most telling moments from that series of events. On June 10th, with the goal of building consensus and designating leadership for the movement, protesters organized the first Chaz People's Assembly. After setting up a stage and PA system, one of the initial speakers raised the question of legitimate authority, asking the audience, what's the structure? How are we going to achieve some sort of communal hierarchy that we all feel comfortable with? The audience booed and insisted that the movement should remain horizontal and leaderless. At the end of the People's Assembly, racial justice activist Julie Chang Shulman conceded that no leadership had been established but that the group had settled on the ideological principles of an abolitionist framework and commitment to solidarity and accountability to black and indigenous communities, end quote. While these kinds of pseudo-symbolic theatrics are transformative for the individuals who will go around talking about how they did something for the rest of their lives, nothing really ever changes. As in activism, so in academia, where accelerating everything is seen as a prime objective, to the point of throwing out the idea of any canon at all, saying reading and rationality is white, or that we must graduate students faster so they can go do activism. A perfect example of this is when Cornell West went on the news to talk about his article in defense of Western classics. He made the basic and undeniable point that there is inherent value to having a basis in the history of ideas and that studying and with that studying western classics 
All right, so the video shown here is the wrong video. Shame on you all for not pointing this out to me earlier. I should have known, I should have known. I'm sorry. This video that it's showing is a video that should be being shown later down below. This is supposed to be the video, I'm gonna pull it up right now. I'm gonna say Cornell West, Cornell West defends Western philosophy, uh, MSNBC, uh, this is the one. Oh, sorry, it's Howard University. Another part of, of the op-ed. is either in that quest. Why you wrote what you wrote and why you feel it is so important to keep classics, uh, especially in uh, traditionally black universities. You know, Brother Joe and Sister Mika, Brother Eddie, and my dear brother, President Wayne Frederick, noted that my mother just passed. And see, my mother was a classic. She believed in the quest for truth, beauty, goodness, and the holy. The condition of truth allows suffering to speak. The beauty has to do with elegance and excellence. And the goodness has to do with justice. And the holy has to do with love. So every culture, every civilization involves in, uh, are involved in that quest. And uh, uh, Howard University, of course, is one of the great institutions that has been involved in that quest. And after talking to the great Larry Morse, who was the head of the, um, the board, and talking to Brother Frederick, I can see that how we are involved in this common quest, but we're trying to come up with ways in which we can ensure that the precious students are able to be able to find their voices. That's why I'm so glad to have President Frederick. Uh, here on this show. So, pre so President Frederick, mm -hmm. uh, tell us about the decision, which obviously uh, drew criticism, uh, and how you're restructuring the study uh, of, of the classics uh, at your university. Yeah, please, uh, thanks for having me. And, um, I'd like to say, uh, Professor West, uh, sorry, send my condolences uh, for your loss. Um, we started back in uh, 2009 uh, with a Presidential Commission on Academic Renewal. I wasn't a part of that, my predecessor was, and it was to look at how we look at our academic offerings, the quality of them, um, looking at the numbers of students involved, and looking in ways that we can contemporize um, these offerings. So the first thing I would say is I think the headline um, probably misrepresented what is happening at Howard. While we are closing the classics department, we are not stopping offering classics. We do believe that the classics are important as a foundational study, just as important as we believe African-American studies is uh, to the black student today. And then the last thing I would say is we also are focused on contemporizing uh, the experience um, of the black student so that they can take the classics and apply it to today's world. You have to remember, we can teach them about Pluto and Seneca and so on, but the reality is these students have to go out in a world and live in a world where they see a George Floyd murdered, and they have to be able to transfer um, that skill set. And so what I think we've been doing here at Howard... I didn't point this out in the article, but the president of Howard University can't get his Pluto from his... He can't tell the difference between Pluto and Plato. I think that... It says almost everything, everything that we needed to say on the matter, but uh, yeah, my God. So let's get back to the article. Where is it? I'm like, I'm like sitting here showing, showing off my private messages. Sorry, everybody. Where the fuck did my article go? What? Hold on. We have an emergency. I lost my place. Gotta delete these, close those out, close that out. Way too many things are open here. Okay, we're back, I found it, let's go. So I will take that link, I will embed it into this in the future so that the proper video is being shown there. Uh, 
Let's continue. To make things interesting and seem balanced, MSNBC brought on the president of Howard University so that he could respond to Cornell's criticisms live. While it is interesting and worth watching on your own, I will here paraphrase the crucial moments where the university president let on more than he perhaps meant to. Quote, we are focused on contemporizing the experience. Y'all just heard me, you just heard him say it from his own mouth. So that black students can apply these ideas. They have to go out into the world where they will see George Floyd murdered. So rather than ask, actually, I'm sorry. No, they don't. They don't have to go out into the world where they will see it. Instagram will show it to them. What are you talking about? So rather than asking our students so much about their major, we are asking them about their mission. So while they will still have classic elements, they will also have progressive activist elements. He then goes on to say that this means speeding up the degree process so they can get out there sooner. Okay. This is good business if what you aim to do is produce the capitalist fast food version of the highly sought after corporate consumer commodity called the activist scholar. Critiques that use buzzwords like instrumentalization or neoliberalism granted and put aside for brevity's sake, this is just capitalism pushing the university into diploma mill territory under the banner of social justice to play off of Nancy Pelosi's outrageous almost funny if not grotesque, and cringeworthy statement of gratitude to George Floyd. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How heartbreaking was that? Call out to your mom. I can't breathe, Pelosi said. Floyd's name will always be synonymous with justice, she said. I'm sorry, and if, if anyone's, if, if this is lost on anybody, he didn't sacrifice his life. He was murdered, but that doesn't mean he sacrificed his life. Jesus, fuck. The tragic case of George Floyd here becomes the image and rationale of making the progressive-branded capitalist university more efficient at turning out its primary commodity, PMC-qualified labor power with woke labeling to make any state or corporate office appear socially conscious, which should always be read as the real motive, litigation proof. Robin D'Angelo HR workshop style. Hopefully, dear reader, you are able to see on your own the way this mentality plays into accelerating little more than careers while simultaneously speeding up the decline of intellectual standards and culture. All very convenient to the modern university, that is, as Carl Jaspers warned against, an intellectual department store with an abundance of goods for every taste. You know, there's another quote from the idea of the university. Carl Jaspers says that astrology and hotel management and philosophy and biology are all put on the same level in this intellectual department store, right? And so here you have the president of Howard University saying, oh, well, you know, the classics aren't going to go away. We'll still sprinkle them in. We'll still have a little bit of Pluto. Okay, dude. I'm sorry, but you're putting Pluto off to the side over by construction management and hotel management. Like this is... The foundations, the, the idea of a foundation that all of the other sciences and philosophy kind of spinoffs are based in, some kind of textual basis so that we can have some kind of dialogue, some kind of a shared referent, that's what's thrown out the window when this is all accelerated to the point where we don't really expect students to even do the readings anymore. 
These last 10 minutes or so might have, is it 20 minutes probably in the reading version? These last 20 minutes or so might have felt like a detour of sorts, but I believe this is the proper context within which modern theory is taught. It is, insofar as we can compare now to the 60s, the intellectual and activist climate within which Jacques Lacan taught. What made sense for him to do then is not what we need now. Before I read the next section, I just want to give everybody who is in the live chat side of things a reminder. At some point, this article is going to end and there will be a bit of a conversation. And so be thinking about if there are anything, is, if there's anything you want to elaborate on or kind of like discuss from this article. So be thinking about that. Maybe take a few notes if you have the time. That'll be great. Next section. Professors, who are not clinicians, please stop assuming students supposed to know. We need you to profess. Where Jacques Lacan was without doubt a master who did everything he could to practice what he taught up-and-coming analysts by putting his own position into question and frustrating the desire of his students with playful and entertaining games, what we need today more than ever are teachers. Unlike the professor in question, Unless the professor in question is training up analysts who will practice the Lacanian method in the clinic, it is debatable to what degree Lacan's teaching method can be use, usually ad, usefully adopted into different contexts where the goals are something other than the practice of psychoanalysis. Right. So I think that there might be something to his teaching approach if what we're thinking about is Lacanian psychoanalysis. The subject supposed to know does not get out of the unconscious position they symbolically hold by just playing the hippie to PMC flipped classroom game. To learn anything, we must be duped. I'm not saying professors should dupe themselves into believing they are actual masters, but they should not refuse us a genuine attempt at playing the role. Right? Like, I'm playing a role right now. I'm playing a role right now. It's okay. It's okay to play a role. Right. But what happens is professors are scared of being called fascist by like one of their students who's going to go, what, what are you doing? You're playing the role of an authority figure. It is highly doubtful that professors or teachers, whether within or outside of the contemporary university, benefit in any intellectual way by refusing to lecture. While it grants the illusion of something radical happening, what really happens is that they are let off the hook for having to come prepared. By the way, let me know in the chat, anyone who's listening to this in the future or right now, uh, if you can relate to this. Have you had the experience of hoping that you would learn something in a course and doing the reading and then going and then finding out that the professor who had read and reread and re-re-re-re-re-read this text uh, wasn't actually going to teach it? and was instead just going to listen to everybody free associate about whatever came to their minds. Because uh, I've experienced it, and that's obviously why I'm talking about it. But I'm curious, I don't want to see in the Zoom chat as well as in the live stream chat if anyone else has experienced this. Anyway, while it grants... Was... Oh, what's that? How new is that phenomenon, though? How new? Yeah, because like... In the mid 2000s to late 2000s, I don't think I ever experienced that, and and I was at a pretty you know postmodern lefty school. 
it's not that new. I mean, it has been around since the 60s, but uh, I think it has been adopted more strongly in some areas than others. But yeah, you went to, you're, you're saying that you went to college between, what, in the late 90s, early 2000s? No, like 2004 to 2010. 2004 to 2010. Well, I can tell you there's a lot of it at Boise State University. And I can tell you there's a lot of it at a few of the other schools that some of the other people who've read this have attended. And I can tell you that the online uh, alternative theory teaching institutions that currently exist, though there might be some good lecture courses, I'm not sure. Um, I know for an absolute fact that most of what you will sign up for uh, thinking is a lecture or a, a serious course is going to turn into nothing more than a discussion group. And so to a certain degree, you know, there's always going to be stodgy old professors dusting off the recycled syllabus from last year that they haven't done anything with. And they're just doing their job, punching the clock. Um, I'm more concerned with the alternative approaches you know, for people who aren't getting enough of what they want at the university and are looking for something else. And so in a sort of sense, this is my kind of uh, flag that I'm staking out in the sand to say, no, uh, Theory Underground is going to take this seriously. We're actually going to have lectures and we're not going to apologize for it. And we do believe that this sets us apart from everyone else right now. You can go try to find um, educational content on any of the stuff that we cover here at Theory Underground. Tell me if you can find lectures about it. While seemingly beneficial in terms of time and energy management in the midst of a chaotic academic session filled with administrative meetings and grading, this tendency is detrimental in the long run. Not only do students then also come unprepared, learning instead not the concepts themselves, but rather how one talks about them, tending to revert to hot takes, insular jargon without useful examples and name dropping. This is indeed the tendency. But something worse also occurs. Joe Freeman was a feminist activist from the 1960s whose critique of horizontalism should be, should be read by everyone. Marxists will, of course, already have their own criticisms, as did Marx, of both democracy and anarchism. But we cannot forget that the new left's non-Marxism, I hesitate to say anti-Marxism, was based in a legitimate revulsion to what had become of worldview Marxism as a dogmatic rationalization of totalitarian state capitalism and various forms of organizing Marx would have most likely disavowed. Okay, there's like three hot takes tied into one sentence here, but I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep reading for the sake of expediency. So though Marxists have both legitimate disagreements and criticisms, the tendency of these to become ossified thought terminating scripts must be refreshed by way of suppression or supersession. Supersession just means, in this case, taking on a different standpoint. Joe Freeman's critique of purported horizontalism falls prey to certain undermining assumptions couched within the common sense of her time. But the main thrust of her argument is useful and worth reading and rereading. In The Tyranny of Structurelessness, she shows how the pseudo-woke disavowal of formal structures always leaves intact the organic structures imposed by personality. My God, this Zizek video is in place of every other video that's supposed to be in here. 
I feel like I'm getting trolled by my past self. I don't know why that's there. This is supposed to show the audio version of that uh, that essay. So if we look up the tyranny of structurelessness, uh, Joe Freeman on YouTube, it comes up as like the first thing. And uh, let me show you here. This is where it is. ...has moved from a healthy counter to those tendencies to becoming a goddess in its own right. The idea is as little examined as the term is much used, but it has become an intrinsic and unquestioned part of women's liberation ideology. For the early development of the movement this did not much matter. It early defined its main goal, and its main method, as consciousness raising, and the structureless rap group was an excellent means to this end. The loose... See, so she's talking about the beginnings of the new left and all this other stuff. It's very interesting, but... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue on here. That's definitely uh, worth reading or listening to on its own, and I will fix the link after this is over. Formal structures are, in this view, so, yeah, she's got this difference between formal structures and, like, organic structures, right? The organic structures are the ones that just arise within any group, right? There are always going to be charismatic sort of personalities that different kinds of people gravitate towards and they'll always be kind of sort of just these sort of naturally occurring cliques and she's saying she's not demonizing that she's saying that's good in fact the the more of those you have the better the point is if you take away any formal structure at all all you have are the those those organic structures the formal structures are supposed to mediate the interests of these different organic structures, right? Otherwise, you just get some good old boys club, right? So, I mean, in the long run, not not any time in the near future, but in the long run, uh, the goal for Theory Underground is to be a place for many different kinds of groups. Um, but for the time being, it's basically like me with the young Jijikians and then these courses that are starting, but over time, the different instructors, instruct the different instructors involved in the different courses and the different forums, we expect out of those will blossom little groups of their own. And in the way that, you know, my conversations with Mikey gave birth to the Voy channel where they do their own readings and conversations, we can expect that there'll be a hundred more flowers to bloom in the near future. Thanks to what we're trying to do here. Formal structures are, in this view, a necessary evil meant to counteract organic hierarchies that form around charismatic personalities, which is a natural enough thing that should not be squashed or discouraged, merely counterbalanced by way of formal structures. Take away the formal structure of a lecture in a classroom by calling it flipped, or a seminar, and what you get is not structurelessness, nor is it a refusal of the subject supposed to know position. The relative experts and charismatic personalities will only dominate more, only now without doing anything useful. In a recent discussion group, I got to see firsthand, week after week, how a professor playing this game became the de facto answerer, committing on everyone else's, commenting on everyone else's contributions. Instead of lecturing or doing some kind of exegesis of the text, it was like a weekly two-hour question and answer period where... Out of 50 viewers, seven people repeatedly raised their hands and then, once called on, would offer their two cents that would then be reflected on by the professor, who either agreed 
or said he disagreed, usually without any more serious treatment than the occasional reference to outside literature. What was talked about the least? The subject matter of the seminar itself. Lectures might have a tendency to be dry, boring, recycled, or overly formalistic. But without the structure of the lecture, all that is left are the personalities that nonetheless pose as subjects supposed to know. When professors attempt to refuse the position of subjects supposed to know, having let themselves off the hook of actually unpacking the subject matter in a critically rigorous manner, they instead fall into the trap of supposing the student to know. Both myself and Mikey, the two most working class people you will find lecturing in the world of theory today, do not suppose ourselves to be the experts, but nonetheless, we are willing to try our best to say what we, to say what we feel confident about regarding a thinker, text, or concept. That is why our interview lecture series, Lacan 101 and Zizek 101, have been so refreshing for so many people. Before, before, returning, before turning to the decisive quote that inspired this post, I want to give one of the best lecturers of the 20th century an opportunity to say what a lecture actually is, or ought to be. In The Idea of the University, a work I am currently teaching with my compatriots Anne and Brian, Carl Jaspers is writing to those who are most responsible for rebuilding the university in the aftermath of the Nazi regime. Jaspers defends the idea of the university against the business interests on the one hand, and on the other, the interests of politically totalitarian groups who would silence genuine disagreements under the auspices of ideological purity. This section is from when he discusses the role and function of the lecture itself. Lectures have held preeminence in teaching for ages. They present the materials to be learned in such a way that the listener can visualize how and for what reasons they were collected. Bare facts can be gathered from books. In lectures, the listener takes notes and is compelled to think about the lecture. He prepares himself for lectures by doing experiments, studying books, and extending his knowledge. One cannot establish a standard for good lectures. If they are good, they have a special quality which cannot be imitated. Their intended meaning, differing widely with the personality of the lecturer, is valuable in each case. There are, lectures, there are lectures which aim to instruct and personally involve the listener, which seek to hold him intellectually, and there are lectures where the speaker, totally oblivious of his audience, engages in a monologue about research and progress, yet even so manages to impart a sense of genuine participation in genuine research. Lectures which aim to sum up an entire subject are in a class by themselves. They are indispensable for they awaken the impulse to envisage the whole, provided through work on the details, provided thorough work on the details is being pushed at the same time. Such lectures should be given only by the most mature professors, drawing upon the sum total of their life's work. There should therefore be general lectures by the most outstanding professors on each of the most basic subjects treated as wholes. And that right there is something I think that is definitely lacking in the world of theory. 
For those lucky enough to actually sit in the presence of someone who lives and breathes a field their whole life giving an introductory lecture, you know intimately what so many privileged academics take for granted, which everyone else, less privileged, has never had the opportunity to experience firsthand. This brings us, finally, to a quote. Dwayne Roussel, a popular Zizekian sociologist, shared from Slavoj Zizek. This gets us to the heart of the matter. To go to the end, one has to correct Lacan. The ultimate, most radical subjective position is not that of the analyst. After achieving this, the only way to avoid cynicism is to heroically pass to the position of a new master. At this point, things get really philosophical, so I want to stop. Slavoj Žižek. And then I think this is actually where I wanted the video to be, the video that is showing Slavoj Žižek, the one that was in two of the wrong places throughout this article so far. I think this is where it actually goes. What we need is a new master. While so many will assume this means we need a new Lenin, I think a more important analogy is that we need a new Marx. The problem is his, his existence, pre, Marx's existence, presupposed a certain intellectual climate that would have been impossible without the professors who made German idealism what it was. What we need are those professors for a new era, but it seems nobody is yet willing to try. Nobody is yet willing to say, okay, I've mastered this, I will teach it. We have that for capital and being in time, thanks to David Harvey and Hubert Dreyfus, respectively. But for Lacan and Zizek, the closest you will find is what Mikey and I have made available on our spare time while working as laborers. Slavoj's dear friend Todd McGowan comes closest to someone who is breaking this stuff down into intro levels. The work McGowan has done on his YouTube channel, as on the Why Theory podcast, as well as amazing works like Capitalism and Desire or Emancipation After Hegel, have set a new standard for making big ideas accessible online in the world of theory today. Mikey is a sort of protege of McGowan and an up-and-coming fellow traveler of Roussel and the other Zizekian Lacanians. The reason Mikey has, in a sort of way, placed McGowan in the master position is because Mikey knows how hard it is to do what McGowan strives to do with every fiber of his being, which is find new ways of making concepts accessible by way of relatable examples. I have to stop at this point to say we will be talking later about some dumb fuck takes. Uh, Andrew, I see you're still in the chat. So yeah, we will be talking about some dumb fuck takes after we're done reading this. But I mean dumb fuck takes about McGowan specifically because I did that interview with McGowan and Mikey and now it's up on my channel and I've received direct messages as well as there's at least one one public comment saying things along the lines of oh he's too politically biased or oh he's wrong about a theory thing or just these kind of downplaying dismissing kinds of positions if it, it what matters, and you, I, will, I will actually show my response to that stuff, my public response to that stuff in a bit here, but basically what matters is 
that uh, McGowan lives and strives, like with every fiber of his being, to make the most difficult concepts in the history of theory accessible by way of relatable examples. And for that, we think he's amazing. The Mikey standard is one that was, that has been, is one that has been coined by one of my friends, Brian, who is, like the rest of us, a reader of Mikey's blog, The Dangerous Maybe. The Mikey standard is this. If you cannot explain it to a drunk dude on a bar stool or your coworker at the warehouse without reverting to name dropping or jargon, then you do not understand it. I would add to that. If you can only draw similarities between a concept and something else that people know without teasing out the absolute differences, then you're definitely not meeting the Mikey standard. Holding himself up to this standard for over a decade after having studied philosophy and theory for six hours per day for over 17 years has made Mikey, in my opinion, the person I most want to see giving lectures on everything, but especially those texts, thinkers, and concepts that are most difficult, but he can't. Mikey can't lecture because he has to work in a warehouse to support his mom. There are a lot of personal and structural reasons that he is not currently teaching at a university because the internet exists. No, sorry, that's two sentences. There's a lot of reasons he's not teaching at the university. Because the internet exists and people like me are hungry for a lot more of the kind of content he has been crafting on The Dangerous Maybe and in conversations with me on my channel, I believe he can be freed from wage labor. And it would take all it would take is $3,000 per month for him to quit his job where he could keep making payments on his mortgage, supporting his mom, you know, thinking about having a life, right? He can't do what I'm doing, which is bumming it in Mexico. He can't do that. That's why I started his Patreon and started promoting hashtag free Mikey at the beginning of 2022. That is why I aim to do everything I can to continue helping him display his talent and skill to those who will benefit from it. I hope more people will do the same. And I hope that by setting an example other people will feel inspired to promote other people as well because the tendency is for someone to start their own thing and they only try to promote their own thing. They might do a crossover with someone else from time to time. But I think that it's up to us to find the workers, the working class people who are best capable of teaching and, 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 and whatever it is that we're most interested in and then doing everything we can to promote them. Even if we're doing it ourselves, we should find the person who's doing the best job of that. And I think it is indisputably true that it's Mikey. I would love to see someone say that there's a close contender. Sadly, the tendency is for people to treat Mikey like he's just any other personality online. Like he is someone just to have on for a casual conversation, as opposed to straight up lecture interviews where he gets to play out the role of subject trying to know. Well, as one who has been in continuous dialogue with him for the last seven years, I do not underestimate him. Mikey can lecture alongside or above many of the most iconic lecturers of our age. Rick Roderick, Wes Cecil, Shelley Kagan, Michael Sandel, Hubert Dreyfus, and David Harvey. And unlike Hubert Dreyfus and David Harvey, both of whom I love, Mikey's not boring. I genuinely have such a hard time paying attention to David Harvey and Hubert Dreyfus. And they're just stodgy old professors. I mean, they're nice. They're, they have like these kind of like 
I don't know. I don't want to talk any shit. I'm not, I'm not talking shit. I'm just saying I have a hard time following them. And uh, it's because they, they just don't bring that kind of blue collar energy to the teaching. In fact, I would say that they bring the opposite of that blue collar energy, which is to say the soft spoken voice with classical music playing at the intro. All right. What kind of master, though? That's the next section. What kind of master, though? And we're almost done. To preempt the inevitable, but we don't need more professors, lecturers, classes, books, or content. We need to change. We need change, and we need it now. As Slavoj said, we need a master. This term is not in vogue today, especially on the left. In those rare cases where a leftist advocates for a master, as is probably true of Zizek as well, the sense is for a new master signifier, or perhaps a leader, that could bring together various elements into a new concerted movement, like, as in, another Lenin or Mao. Fair enough. But those guys were, like every Marxist, riding on the coattails of a lifelong research and activism project conducted primarily by Marx, who was, first and foremost, a thinker benefiting from the general cultural the general culture created by an already existing working class movement and, and I'm being reconnected internet internet dropped the call for a second but I think we're back so welcome back um so those are two separate things okay those are two things that coalesced in Marx's time on the one side an already existing working class movement, and on the other side, an intellectual climate raised to its highest level by Hegel and company. Those are two separate things that coincided, both of which are lacking today. Okay, Obviously, you have little, little fractures or little glimmerings of the potential of those things, or maybe echoes left over from those things, but as far as like the the intellectual climate and the actual working class movement, those two things do not already exist. Marx was able to presuppose them. As I argued in my critique theory and ideology post, Hegel raised the stakes of critique to a level beyond anything anyone has ever raised it. Marx met that standard, but Lenin and co. proceeded to lower it to Fox News lows. Now I know half of you are going to rage quit on me. Don't worry, just save it till afterwards, Eamon. While there were good enough reasons for that at the time, it is on us to bring the standard back up. The idea of the university lives on, but little thanks to the institutions operating under that name. At least, not if we hold these institutions to the standard defended by Carl Jaspers. In that post, I already said Marxist critics of the left like Benedict Cryptofash fail to do as Marx did because I brought up Cryptofash's wonderful article on occupying ideology and considering the fact that this spells out what I mean by the standard Marx strived to meet, I will reproduce the most relevant piece from that post. And this is a little bit of a long quote, but I want to read it because uh, it's likely a lot of you missed that post. It's a very important one, but for now, this should get the point across as far as like what I think Theory Underground is trying to achieve that NSP, when that was the thing, realized we don't have it and we need it, right? 
Quote, Benedict Cryptofash thinks that he is being like Marx when he critiques the left as being nothing more than a reification of the two-party system and accompanying supportive assumptions that function to naturalize capitalism under the guise of a progressive democracy, which is great. But this is far from all, much less what is most important when it comes to what Marx was doing. Cryptofash fails to do as Marx did when he merely critiques opposition from the supposed outside, as opposed to imminent critique, as in inside-out. Fails to advocate for a clear agenda, or at least failing to lay the groundwork for a solution by advocating for a set of working principles and goals. For Marx, it was the communist movement and its strategy for building off of the existing workers' movement inside and outside of the parliamentary system and the labor unions for a revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. That was, that was ill-defined and little more than an operating assumption at that point. Hides behind anonymity, something Marx vehemently opposed when he saw it advocated for by the likes of Bakunin and the anarchists who were for militant, subterfuge, and secret societies. Right, So there's three major points where Cryptofash is failing to be as Marxist as he wants. I can basically agree with his critiques while also saying there's good in the things that he's critiquing and he tends to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And if he was doing points one through three here, then part of what he would be doing is a sort of salvaging project where, yes, he's critically taking apart these uh, various movements and ideologies, but doing it from inside out and then drawing it all together into some new master project. But he, he's not doing that. Because Marxists, the left, progressives, etc., have lost the plot in so many ways, it is time to go back to the drawing board, which would mean we also have to revamp our personal and community education regimens. Imminent critique today would not just mean between your favorite dissident factions. We have so much more work to do than anyone has acknowledged. As Zizek has said elsewhere, we have to reverse Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach. Because we tried to change the world too fast last time, the point now is we need thinking. Okay, this is actually where the video is where he says that. You had to obey orders a new authoritarian society. And this is a serious problem. How to abolish market without regressing into, again, into relations of servitude and domination. My advice would be, because I don't have simple answers, two things. A, precisely to start thinking. Don't get caught into this pseudo-activist pressure. Do something, let's do it, and so on and so on. No, the time is to think. I even provoked some of the leftist friends when I told them that if the, the famous Marxist formula was philosophers have only interpreted the world, the time is to change it, thesis 11 on Feuerbach, that maybe today we should say in the 20th century we maybe tried to change the world too quickly. The time is to interpret it again, to start thinking. Second thing, I'm not saying... Good enough for now. Yeah, so that, there we go. And by the way, uh, Mikey, uh, speak of the devil, popped up in the live chat on the YouTube side and said that uh, the links were all correct when he was reading the post. So that's good to know. Maybe this is an issue with my cookies getting all confused in my browser. I don't know. We'll have to figure that out later. 
Only a thoroughgoing critique of everything and a revamped education regimen will develop us to the point where the basis is enough for a new Lenin capable of not falling into so many of the same traps of repeating history in the worst and most farcical ways. Okay. And uh, it would be farcical if someone tried to do the same thing again. I'm not saying it's farcical that he tried. There is a difference to be pointed out there. And I put us in quotation marks there because it's a very ambiguous we. Who is us besides disaffected, disenfranchised, critical people who are trying to figure out what the hell is going on? Okay, that's not a very unified group, this us. But nonetheless, it is uh, the space of non-belonging that we are occupying. We must reverse what the chair of a local Marxist-Leninist org once told me point blank. Are you all ready for this? This is the fucking quote of the century. When I was told this, and by the way, this person, you know, has big old like hammer and sickle patch on their on their jean vest and is an extremely loud, supposedly radical voice in the in this in the city where I'm from. This person is at every protest. This person does all this anti-imperialist organizing. Um, and it's all just a big show that actually does nothing. And uh, here's what she said. She said, Marx read Hegel so that we don't have to. Lenin read Marx so that we don't have to. Stalin read Lenin so that we don't have to. Mao read Stalin so that we don't have to. End quote. If she were being more honest, she would have said, and our party has written summaries with talking points to memorize, so we don't have to think. Reversing this formula is not enough, either. To reverse it, we would focus our reading emphasis on Marx himself, reading him like a guru who found the philosopher's stone. The point for me is to take inspiration from the attitude, approach, and practice itself, a thoroughgoing imminent critique of everything most relevant to the subject matter. What is the subject matter, by the way, is a very important question. If the subject matter is for you only revolution or anti-capitalism, then maybe what that person had said would work for you, or maybe the reversal of it would work for you. But we also have to re-clarify the subject matter itself, which is what I do believe time energy theory is doing, and it's definitely what I'm trying to do. What we, now, what we need now is not just someone like a Lenin or Mao to lead a left version of the capital siege. Democrats want to play that up as the most dangerous attack on democracy since the Civil War. But anyone who knows anything is well aware that the levers of power do not exist in the Capitol building. For Lenin, once the soldiers joined, they could storm the Winter Palace and hold the center of power. But today, power is not so centralized nor are the suits who represent it for the cameras. Nor are the suits who represent it for the cameras the decisive factors. I'm going to go ahead and I've got to run to the restroom while I play this, uh, this, this video that I linked there, the Capitol Siege video. The worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Fucking A, man. Glad to see you guys. Good evening. 150 days since the worst single act of political violence since the Civil War. January 6th was worse than 9-11. Worst act of political violence since the Civil War. The likes of which 
I don't think it has, has existed since probably since the Civil War. I think we're in the most perilous point in time since the advent of the Civil War. I do too. The worst attack against America's democracy probably since the Civil War. Unprecedented, at least since the Civil War. The worst attack on our republic since the Civil War. The fact is that we faced on January 6th the most serious attack on our democracy uh, probably since the Civil War. This is as fraught a July 4th as the nation has had really since the Civil War. I mean, we have questions uh, that we really haven't asked in a very, probably since uh, the Civil War. The most destructive thing to American democracy is probably since the Civil War. Nothing comes close this side of the Civil War. Six months since the worst attack on American democracy, arguably, probably since the Civil War, and it's still not over. Now, the White House says the president's also going to say that these laws they're trying to enact in Texas are the biggest threat to voting rights since the Civil War. Literally, we're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole since the Civil War. In calling the wave of state voting laws that are upon us the greatest threat to our democracy since the Civil War, his talking about voting rights, the way he did it, and the way he defined it. The most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. It's not just another layer of rhetoric. All of this is the piece of, a piece of the same puzzle, John. They are all on the right creating the biggest threat to our democracy since the Civil War. The biggest threat to our constitutional republic since the Civil War. The worst challenge to our democracy since the Civil War. I think you all get the point, and I'm back, so let's continue on. But my God. I hear some talking downstairs, but I don't uh, hear it in the Zoom side, so not sure if that was for me. Yeah, I wish you would play the video for like one more second. I need to use the blender, and I just keep waiting. Oh my God. Oh, go for it. Just go for it. Okay, cool. Thanks. Nothing's wrong with a little noise in the background. Am I right, people? Okay. Like I said, we're almost done. Let's get to it. I'm going to reread that paragraph though. What we need now is not just someone like a Lenin or Mao to lead a left version of the capital siege. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. The people in suits are not the decisive factors. Okay. With the changes in conditions, we do not just need action that runs on old scripts. We need theory. Before a new Lenin, we need a new Marx, but only a new intellectual climate, which raises the bar back to Hegelian heights of thoroughgoing rigor, could possibly incubate such a person. There's the blender. My goal is not to be Hegel or Marx, nor Heidegger, Levinas, Deleuze, Foucault, or Baudrillard. As an aspiring thinker who must teach to learn, I consider it my calling to play some role in making a new Marx possible. We must prepare ourselves to be worthy of training up a new master in theory. Only then will a new master signifier, much less someone capable of representing it in politics without capitulating to tired old scripts and predetermined marketing demographics, be possible. Because the university and influencer sphere above ground, as in mainstream and alternative sources currently on offer as establishment and counter-establishment, have so drastically failed to raise the challenge or to rise to the challenge or raise the stakes, because of that, it is on us to do it ourselves to the best of our ability at the theory underground. The end. We did it. Thanks for sitting through all of that with me, everybody. Uh, 
there are people who just do not understand what's going on at Theory Underground or do not understand how what I was doing in the past has turned into what I'm now doing. And there are like three posts that I've written that are available on the website that should make it painstakingly clear. But I think that this one, especially this last section, really gets to the heart of it. And that is that we need to stop seeing ourselves as the saviors of the world and see ourselves as people who are here to offer tools to those who are going to do it. Because those who are going to do it haven't been born yet. And that kind of thinking about those who aren't with us yet and trying to equip them and equipping ourselves to be able to equip them, which takes a lot of research and effort, obviously, is the most important thing that could be, be, could be done right now. I believe that with every ounce of my being or I wouldn't be doing everything that I'm doing, which is not easy, is not lucrative, is not something that attracts masses of people who are so excited to sit there and confirm their biases. No. This is the hardest thing that anyone can do is realize you're only a little piece of a much bigger puzzle and that it's in part, I think, this is a worthy assumption on us to develop some kind of intergenerational thinking that isn't just about our grandparents and our future children, but is instead about what about people like us born in the future who have no equipment, who have no instruction, who have no courses set up like the, what Theory Underground is trying to do, like what Philosophy Portal is trying to do. What about those people? What about those people stocking shelves and driving trucks and busy changing diapers who are trying to think through things anew and ultimately, if it's beneficial to them, it'll be beneficial for that little future Marx person who is going to obsessively speed run and accelerate through all of the stuff that we spent our entire lives developing so that they could benefit from that intellectual climate. That's what I'm saying. So thank you, everybody. Let's open it up to general discussion. I'm going to change the way that the screen is appearing here. I'm going to change it to a view that should show the Zoom call. Y'all are welcome to participate. Okay, I'm going to turn off my camera over here and see if I can turn it on over here. Hey, all right. Is anybody here? Did, did you all fall asleep? What's going what on? What up? Welcome, Anne. What are you blending? Hello. Uh, salsa. Oh my God, what? <laughs> Who's coughing over there? Yo, yo. Who else? <laughs> Eamon, is it Eamon or Eamon? It's Eamon. Eamon. Okay, so I, my... My, because I, I used to say Eamon, but I've started saying Eamon because I suspected I was wrong. So, okay, good to know. <laughs> good job. Thank you. Do you want to show your face? Does anyone else want to show their faces? Go ahead and turn your video on if you do. Honestly, though, we we rarely call you Eamon. Though we usually just refer to you as Swole when we're it's when we're talking about you. It's true. Not so Swole now. I lost like fifteen pounds in the last little bit. <laughs> oh, for real? Yeah. On purpose? We'll, we'll, get, we'll get back there. We'll get back to greatness. Swole. <clears throat> Andrew and Swole are the only two people interested in theory who 
work out as much as they do that I know of. Shit, Swole lost weight. I gained weight. I'm at 160 now. Like when you first met me, I was at 145. Wow. That's thanks to you as well. I started doing military press more, so seated and standing, barbell nice. only. <laughs> How tall are you? I am five six. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You have an excuse then to be that that light. <laughs> this is kind of what happens when you stop repressing or feeling bad about any thing that appears masculine and then you actually add breakdown riffs to your to the intro of your videos uh you get you get these fucking theory meathead dudes like andrew and Swole ah. showing up. <laughs> i'm just kidding you guys aren't meatheads <laughs> andrew's shaking his head i you're not no you guys are the furthest thing from meatheads you guys are yeah it's funny i got my i got my uh jiu-jitsu coach's uh daughter into uh philosophy because she was like one day we were uh she was teaching the class she's like uh i told you like oh yeah like i'm reading uh carl jung like uh i think it's like the undiscovered self or something like that one of those like more polemical where he's like critiquing like scientism and stats and modernity and so like i got her um nakamaking ethics ethics of ambiguity and then existentialism is humanism so you know it's pretty dope that like more people in these circles are starting to like speculate on like positions like that or like theory or, or, or just books in general. Right. Your mic is off, Dave. Oh my God. Okay. This is part of what, my uh, my, part of mine got part of what, uh, Mikey was talking about is when he was talking about different people are into different things and bringing those things into relation with theory is one of the most beneficial things we can do. And he was talking about, whether it's working out, fighting, uh, fixing your car engine, skateboarding, whatever it is, you could have a channel or a blog that combines theory with your practical hobby, passion, side project, whatever. Like Anne in the future, when she's super based in all these texts, is going to easily be able to riff off of theory. I mean, she's already got it to some degree, you know, but, you know, and apply that to things like vegan cooking or theater and stuff like that, <laughs> right? And Swole, you can do the same thing with working out in the way that uh, Master Sig here does with fighting. But um, what I wanted to point out is that the tendency is for people to just apply it to politics or film analysis, Right. Sometimes great literature is also a part of it or maybe tying it into debate culture is a little bit of it. But that those those things are so overrepresented. And that here's the thing. If you're into language acquisition or cooking or jujitsu or any of these other things, the community of people there are diverse in their interests and in their worldviews and in their personalities. But if you're primarily based in politics and then you're just doing theory and bringing that into politics that diversity of worldview the kinds of assumptions brought to the table the personalities attracted the scope is drastically narrowed right and that and that pre-existing marketing demographic is so overrepresented and catered to but what if we want 
what Mikey wants, what he would call, what Mikey would call it normie socialism. But if we, if we want that, it's not going to come from just bringing theory into politics and vice versa. It's going to come from tying theory into normal, cool ass shit. You know, so that's why I've been trying to do that a bit more with like underground music and stuff on my Instagram. So uh, three things. I'm going to pull up the comment that was on McGowan at, specifically so I can read off my response to it. So we can talk about that because I know Andrew had some thoughts about it as well. And we'll tie in somebody else that will be vague talking about. We're not going to call out that person by name or anything. Um, and then... The uh, well, the second thing is we'll just have a bit of a conversation here, and then I'll close this out on the public side. But there will be a private side, and from now on, for our weekly review, I'm thinking it'll probably from now on be on Sundays around this time. I don't want to do Friday nights anymore because that's getting in the way of me living a life, and Sunday afternoon is easy and fun. Okay. And so obviously it worked for you all as well. And so you'll all be welcome to come in the future to those things as well. Uh, and then there's always going to be the public side that's the live stream. And then there will be like the kind of behind the scenes side. And, you know, patrons or people attending the course, they'll be welcome to the private side. Because I could imagine that one of you in the chat right now has some shit you want to talk about from this week, but you don't want to talk about it publicly. And we want to be able to have those conversations. So after I go unlive, I'm going to tell you all about something that happened that I lost sleep over. Um, and it's a private thing, not to be shared with the broader world. And so stick around for that if you want to be a part of that conversation. But does anybody want to say anything while I'm pulling up that quote? I want to say, like, in regards to that, article that you read that you you wrote about teaching it's so frustrating to like even be in like higher level sociology classes with like these really well-read instructors who know their shit who just like refuse to teach like i took a 300 level like sociology of sex and sexuality class and i was so pumped i was like oh, we're gonna read some theory oh, i'm gonna get some good lectures and every single class, all we did was sit in groups and talk to each other about our opinions, about what we had read. And then the one class, or I had a couple of classes where like, oh, an instructor, instructor actually lectured. And the one class that I took with like kind of a controversial conservative instructor who has been canceled like multiple times for saying dumb conservative shit, he was the best professor I've ever had. And students in that class, and the class was like not even that hard compared to other classes. It was just like, oh, we read entire books. We wrote three essays throughout the year. And then he like did like really engaging lectures throughout the class. And I heard students being like, oh my God, this is the hardest class I've ever had to take in my whole life. So students just like aren't even ready for that. And it's just frustrating because I feel like I wasted a lot of my time at the university just sitting there listening to like other people's opinions and not actually getting any like knowledge from smart people who had done these readings. So that that's my story. But yeah. So, yeah, I think now that I think now that I think about it, that did actually happen 
more towards the end of my university career, more that like the 400, 4,000 level, like fourth year classes, third year classes, you get less lectures and more um, classes that were just kind of like seminar or seminar lecture hybrids. And it was a lot of that. But in all the classes that I had that did have lectures, um, which was most of them, I think, it was still like we were getting taught something at least. Here, here, you know, when I, when I said anybody who has, I said, has anyone else experienced this say so in the chat? And I meant the tech space chat. And then all of a sudden swole like comes in with his voice and I was like, oh shit. But, um, I'm glad, I'm glad that you know what we're talking about at least. And you're right. I do think that it's more on the graduate side or the higher, higher level course side. That is, which is. Which is kind of crazy because in a sense, it's getting easier as you go. <laughs> like through grad school, you would think, oh, it's going to get harder. Yeah, those should be the classes where you're like reading and unpacking really heavy texts and to have someone who's just like trying to help explain it seems like that's where it needs to be useful. But instead, it's like, okay, today I'm going to ask you, what did you think of this non or this young adult fiction book that we're reading in a 400 level sociology class? I mean, in the comments, like, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I had this experience. I I was in uh, uh, theater school, and it was it was during everything at Sakoti Park. And one of our teachers was like, "You shouldn't even be in class. Like, you guys should be down there, like, protesting the stuff." And some people got up and left. And I kind of remember just it, it it was like so, so farcical. I was like, I'm. I'm here to learn some things from you about how, you know, to maybe be a better actor. Um, and her thing was like, well, the way that you do that is you like go and you shout on the street. And I was like, okay, but what are you here for? <laughs> like, what, what's, what's the point? What's the point of um, me like, given you that and then like i remember we had like a support group for like the next two classes about what it was like for the people that went down there and you know they recommended like i mean it wasn't all bad they were like read some david graber or something like that but you know for the most part it was just like it's it's just tough to tell like what's sort of lazy uh versus what's like maybe groundbreaking and important so that was a that was a weird, weird experience. Right. There's something that I wanted to comment on, and it ties in with what, what your your whole article is about on mastery, but also what really kind of helped me illustrate my thoughts were the was the video on uh, Cornell West talking to, was it the president of, of Harvard, right? Of Harvard Howard. University. Howard, yes. Howard, Howard University. And this goes back to the reversal of the 11th thesis on Feuerbach that Zizek does, right? And when we don't think we get what Philip just demonstrated, people just acting and not knowing what they're doing there, right? They're just going to mirror the other, right? And what's interesting about that uh, president of Howard University is He's doing what Lacan talks about in seminar one, right? He talks about, you know, what's interesting about the word elephant that the word, you know, substitute the thing. So we could talk about elephants right now in the Zoom call and they don't have to be there. We could talk about, you know, the, 
you know, if they're an endangered species or not. Uh, we could talk about animal rights. We could talk about, you know, the different types of elephants. And the same way we could talk about the students and how we could signify them and speak for them without them having to be there. There's representation for that. And the way he said, he's like, we, we don't, we, you know, classics are good. We don't want to get rid of classics, but we want to make room for African studies. And also we want to uh, allow them to go out in the world because they're going to go to a world where uh, they're going to experience people like George Floyd being murdered. But that's that's the sort of uh, dialogue at PMC dialogue where it's like we speak for you. And, and, and Dave's whole article was about uh, starting off with transference. Right. If there is a transference in which somebody evokes a subject supposed to know on a, a a person who's supposed to be in a place of mastery or teaching, then on the level of mastery and teaching, there could be somebody who could evoke uh, counter transference. And he's doing that by trying to evoke a sort of representation for these students. It's like, oh, they're a subject that's supposed to be thinking this way, a subject that's supposed to be acting. They have no room for classics. You have someone like Cornell West, like no matter how much you want to argue about his politics now, if he's like a liberal or he's a sock dam or socialist, whatever. The fact is he's on this level of the way idea of the university is, is that we should be learning about the good, you know, uh, the classics, truth, truth seeking. Things are going to question uh, not only authority, but also one's position in the world, one's existence and justice. Because what was the whole thing about George Floyd was the problem of justice. How are you going to act and ask for justice when you don't even know the question of justice? You're listening to the PMCs tell you what to think, right? And then you mm. go act violently. And maybe, you know, the, the family won, right? You know, they got their own restorative justice. But is it a collective thing or only just a particular thing that really overwhelms the reality of the question of justice. You don't get that if you're not going to a place to learn about this, right? Because the 11th uh, thesis of Feuerbach that Zizek is reversing, he's, when he's saying the thing, it's not navel-gazing. We have this material space and institution where we could digest uh, dissect and question these things. But if you have people taking away the classics and not giving you a space to think and saying, go act, go out there. What are you doing? Go with your comrades, go with your fellow students, go act and support. Then there's none of that. And so then you got like, the, I guess, for lack of better term, the blind lead the blind. Yeah. Or the blind being led by institutions that have already found a symbolic, that is our, that have already kind of set aside a symbolic placeholder where you go through your rite of passage into the PMC by performing something radical like yelling at someone in a suit, right? Like, oh, I, I got my stripes. Yeah. And it obviously, God damn, you know, I, I hate having to make disclaimers. Obviously, um, that doesn't, that shouldn't reflect on everybody who's involved, right? But uh, yeah, no, uh, BLM was a, a mixed bag. It was different things in different places to different people because it's very anarchistic, doesn't have a very well-defined uh, hierarchy, which is kind of what that was all about anyway. But also, it's about page uh, online said one thing, and then what activists were saying locally was another thing, and that those two things were often in conflict. And so conservatives were usually critical about what's on the about page of the website, you know, oh, we're, we're here for black business and black this and black that and black seclusion. But then you go to the you go to the actual protest and they're like, this is about everybody. What's good for us is good for everybody. And so obviously we want to make things accessible to everybody. And so it's, you know, so you would get like the universalist kind of approach, the way that McGowan talks about it. You would get that universalist approach. 
at some protests and then other ones you don't. And it's very, and you know, sometimes it was very exclusionist and very uh, racially segregated and all those other kinds of things. So, oh, or if, or in Boise, in the case of Boise, uh, the people, the clique, the informal clique that was running the show uh, was like three uh, sorority girls who were all uh, demanding that everybody pay them personal reparations to their Venmos. And there was like, I don't know, like 20 loud white women who were like, yeah, do it. <laughs> so I, I just hate to see the whole movement get wrapped up into like good or bad or this or that because it's such a mixed bag and it's that's part of the issue with this horizontalist stuff. Okay, I've got the quote though. I'm going to turn it on here on screen. I shared it into the Zoom chat so you should all be able to see it there as well. But the folks uh, who are watching from YouTube, check out the screen. The person, I've went ahead and like crossed out their name because I'm not trying to make fun of them or call them out here in public. That's not the point. The point is to talk about the message. They said, the more I hear of Todd, the less I respect him. He seems to be incredibly biased towards his side. Okay, what is his side? It's obviously the left. I said, at the end of the day, I hope what people come to Todd for is clarity on Lacanian, Hegelian, Marxist, Zizekian concepts as opposed to political standpoint. I love Todd. His political commitments are limiting, but also help him see some things we might not otherwise talk about. I respect him as a human, an intellectual, and a teacher or mentor figure more than as a politician or someone who is representing the left. Okay? And obviously, he does assume a left audience and he speaks to a left audience and his goal is to kind of help the left mature, to be more of a universalist project, you know? And if you'd think that that's, you think, what, you, you think people shouldn't try to talk to the left ever? Is that what you're saying? Okay, and then uh, Post Bullsh in the chat here uh, says that the person wishes that McGowan was some big brain centrist because he doesn't care about learning theory more than he cares about the political positions or takes of theorists. That can only mean he cares more about ideology than theory itself. I'm here to learn concepts. McGowan is king. <laughs> yes, McGowan is king. And uh, I wholeheartedly endorse Mikey putting McGowan on this sort of pedestal. But the point of the phallus or of the master position for all of us, and this should be very obvious, I shouldn't have to say it, but I will for the newcomers, is that it's a, it's a performance. It's a role that's taken on. It's not inherent to the person, right? To, to put a person in that position, it's to dupe yourself, right? Nobody actually has mastered anything in, in like this, in this sort of absolute sense, but we have to take our turns trying. So that's, that's all I wanted to say on that. Anything else we want to talk about here before we go private? No? Okay. This has been an especially long uh, week in review. I said I wasn't going to have them long anymore. I lied. I don't care. The people who are trying to catch up on everything they missed, 
We've tried to put it all together here for you. And I think that that article is a really big part of it. And if you can't read it yourself, I hope that you found that helpful. So thank you so much for joining on the side of YouTube, everybody who's watching from YouTube. Thank you, everybody who's listening to this in the future on the podcast or who might be getting involved with Theory Underground in the future and is doing like a speed run of the backlog of these weeks and reviews. You're a champ. Um, thank you so much, everybody. I'm going to close out here by playing Anne's Dancing. I see that. I'm going to play uh, an ad. I'm going to play that U.S. tour ad here at the end. Everybody in the Zoom call, let's just take a break and then reconvene. I'm going to go grab a bite to eat really quick and then be right back up here. And then Ann and I are going to tell you all about something that I lost sleep over that is related to all this stuff, but not the, not something we're going to talk about publicly. All right, tour time. If you're if you're in the Zoom call, you will not hear this. You have to go to the YouTube side to be able to see what what's happening. Okay, be right back. Uh, here we go. Let's do it. attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time-energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're going to be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state. Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so that we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding, on the other hand, though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri. And he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything. And it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest. 
things we've ever experienced. And it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy, whereas other people want to take you out and show you around. And so if you're interested in being a volunteer, host, or guide, we have a special form for that. So please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you, touch base with the local community. And if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Bolgrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in, that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with. And yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations already. We've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations, um, and so thank you. And uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Fury Underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts, and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that yeah people have read the stuff that you're reading uh that you're bringing into dialogue and so uh for instance the idea of the university by carl jaspers dedicated for it for they don't know what they do dedicated for him. and then as people take the course over the years new people will be coming into that forum and so if you get in there early you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves and as new people add into the conversation it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through questions that you had with the first time that you read the text and so i'm really excited for this the reason i've built this website is because i think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces is that ability to return to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way 
on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like Discord. And so stay tuned because there is an app on the way. Thank you to our donors. If you want to donate, go to theory-underground.com forward slash support. Thank you.